Well, as much as it felt kind of fun and exciting to preach in the squelching, sweltering heat last week, it sort of felt like, man, we're like the underground church of China here, you know, fending for ourselves, you know, we just have to make it on our own, defying the government. It is nice to have AC. Way too much information. You would not believe how wet my shirt was last week. It was really, it was really a sight to behold here. Right? So we have got it uh, quite well made in the shade this morning. Um, well, uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but, but the month of June is, is officially and nationally declared a gay pride month. And I, I figured that was, it was only appropriate then that in light of that, that we talk about what the Bible has to say about the issue of homosexuality. And I think you'd all agree that the world in which we live right now, it is a radically different world than it was just even a handful of years ago. Am I right? It's a totally different world. And the day that I realized that the world had changed was the day when the rainbow colors of the homosexual community were, were proudly displayed on the front of the White House. Do you remember that? That was June 26th, 2015. And that was the first day that I realized that the church was about to face a new stage of difficulty and challenge and maybe even persecution. See what that was? That was the evening after the Supreme Court had ruled that all same-sex couples were now legally permitted to marry, thus establishing a new civil right. And when I saw those colors, a very clear, although subliminal, a very clear message was communicated that I felt very keenly in that moment, and the message was this. You oppose this, and you oppose the highest political authorities on the planet. You accept and celebrate this without question, or you will face the consequences. That was the message. That was the message. And the reason why I say it felt like everything had changed is because all throughout Western history, the process of legislating and, and lawmaking uh, played out in a non-threatening way for most of the church, right? That that's played out very easily for us. So long as the general moral judgments of the culture and the convictions of the church were aligned, everything is hunky-dory. Um, you know, furthermore, to, to be found on the wrong side of the law was extremely rare for Christians throughout most of Western history. So the law's views on marriage are our views on marriage. The law's views on divorce are our views on divorce. The law's views on homosexuality, those are our views. Everything is great. Those days are now over. Those days are over. Because in America, we're facing nothing less than a comprehensive redefinition of life and love and liberty and the very meaning of right and wrong as the church in America now faces a new and unprecedented challenge. You accept and you celebrate the claims of the new sexual revolution without question or you will face the consequences. Al Mohler put it like this. He said, the, this moral revolution is now so complete that those who will not join it are understood to be deficient, intolerant, and even harmful to society. Now, this is, of course, not the first time that the church has had to face these kind of challenges, and it most certainly will not be 
the last. The church has weathered many, many brutal storms in its 2,000-year history, and it will again weather this storm, even if that storm brings rejection and hostility and loss of legal rights and protection and even persecution. You see, we've had it so easy here in this Disneyland of Christianity, but the gates of comfort and security are closing in America, and they are closing fast. But I don't want to let this dismal introduction fool you. I don't want you to be fooled by this because this morning is profoundly, and I repeat, profoundly not a political gripe session about how great America used to be before the liberals took over. It's not what this is. This is not going to be a time where we bellyache together about how we've lost our Christian nation, whatever that means, and as if that were even possible. And this morning is most certainly not going to be a time that creates a sense of blame or disgust for homosexuals or transgenders or the LGBT community. Not at all. Rather, I have something profoundly more biblical and theological and Christological and doxological and missiological in mind. You you have to understand what, what we're doing this morning is walking a very difficult knife edge of tension and talking about this issue. So the tension is this, we have to expose the sexual revolution and the gay rights agenda on the one hand without, get this, without sacrificing a shred of love and compassion for individual homosexuals on the other hand. Do you see? In other words, we as a church must oppose a movement that seeks to diminish the roles of men and women and marriage and sexuality, but the ex- at the exact same time weep and love and pray and care for the very people trapped within that movement. You see, we must feel a real moral outrage over homosexuality and over every other sin also but we must do so as those who were as once closer to hell than the very chairs on which we are sitting. Because when we approach sin from that perspective, then we will never feel even a millimeter of another human be- another millimeter of superiority over another human being again. So my aim this morning is to produce in you lion-hearted courage and broken-hearted compassion for real people with real souls who will really spend eternity somewhere, who need the gospel, just like everybody else. And in particular, I have in mind those in the homosexual community. Let me say this, though. If you have notes, you can kind of follow along where I'm going. I basically have five parts to this. Uh, Part one or two, whatever it is. I want to say a word to those in this room who might struggle with same-sex desires and attraction. Because I'm very aware of the fact that there there could be people in this room who who struggle with same-sex desires and attraction. Or at the very least, you know people who struggle with same-sex desires and attraction. And for those of you who do, or those that you know that do, those desires and attraction for the same sex, you did not ask for them, and you don't want them. And maybe they're desires that you've always had. Maybe they're desires that have emerged over time. And I have heard from those who battle these desires that they can feel so shameful and make you feel so dirty and defiled and unforgivable that you feel as though you are beyond repair. And you see, you need to to hear this. If you are in Christ, 
and you love Christ and you want to be holy and yet you struggle with these same sex desires and attraction, you need to hear what I'm about to say loud and clear. You are not the enemy. We are not mad at you. You are not inferior. You, don't, you are not in trouble with us. You don't have to, and you must not keep your struggles hidden because as the church, we want to love you, and we want to care for you, and we want to dispense God's grace to you and, and so that you can see real life change and transformation, not just over same-sex desires and attractions, but all of the sinful desires with which you struggle. That's the mission of the church for everyone. And now, as the church, we make no claims to be able to care for you perfectly, but we want to, we want to, and we want to let you know that we are here to help you. And just like anybody else, we want you to be supremely satisfied with all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished. So I want you to be encouraged this morning. You and the people that you know that struggle with these desires, you're not alone. You are not alone. We want you to enjoy Christ and see, have power over sin. Which brings me to my next part, um, which is that we need to define our terms. Anytime that you discuss a, a controversial issue, theological or cultural, we need to take some time to define our terms. And uh, this morning, you're going to hear me say things like same-sex behavior, same-sex activity, same-sex conduct. And I'm going to also say things like same-sex desires, same-sex attraction, and, and I want you to hear this very caref carefully because I, I am making a, a profound distinction between same-sex activity and same-sex attraction. Do you hear the difference between those two things? The difference is this. Homosexual desires and attraction, that might be involuntary. In other words, those things might happen to you and you did not seek them out and you did not ask for them. Those might be involuntary. But homosexual activity, on the other hand, is always voluntary. Do you hear the difference? In other words, in many cases, probably even a majority, same-sex attraction is not a choice necessarily. Same-sex attraction is not always a choice necessarily. But same-sex activity is always a choice. You see, we were all born, every single one of us in this room, we were all born as fallen human beings. We were all born with unwanted un uh, and unasked-for desires for what is forbidden. Agreed? Just think of your own struggles and desires. We were all born with unwanted, unasked-for desires for what God has forbidden. And, um, and for some, those unwanted, unasked-for desires just happened to be for inappropriate relationships with the same sex. They didn't ask for those desires. They didn't seek them out. They don't necessarily remember doing anything to awaken those desires. For many people, those desires are just kind of there. And so whether someone has homosexual uh, desires or not, everybody, everybody, without exception, by virtue of being a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, has the experience, shares the experience of having unwanted, unasked for desires for what God has forbidden. We are all in the same boat here. That being said, while same-sex attraction might not be a choice, same-sex activity 
is always a choice. We have to get that clear. What I mean is, while one might have unwanted homosexual desires, that does not suggest that they are compelled to act on those desires. Furthermore, um, you know, if you've read uh, blogs or articles or heard or interviews, uh, you'll hear terms uh, and a couple specific terms that I'm thinking of, uh, particularly uh, the words gay and orientation. So we, we've all heard those terms, gay and orientation. And I'm very cautious about using those terms. In fact, I try to avoid those terms whenever possible. I'm not the word police. I'm not going to get on you if you use those words. But you have to understand what the world means by the terms gay and orientation and and why it is that I avoid those in particular. Again, I'm not going to hound you or say anything if you use them. I just want you to know what the world means. You see, what the world means by gay and orientation is they mean an identity and a lifestyle that has connotations of something permanent, unchanging, and unquestionably genetic. Does that make sense? When the world says gay and orientation, they mean something that is permanent, unchanging, and unquestionably genetic, and something that defines who they are. Listen to what Sam Albury says. Sam Albury as himself a Christian, and he himself struggles with same-sex uh, desires and attraction. And listen to what he says. He said, for this reason, I tend to avoid using the term gay. It sounds clunky to describe myself as someone who experiences same-sex attraction, but describing myself like this is a way for me to recognize that the kind of sexual attraction I experience, get this, is not fundamental to my identity. They are a part of what I feel, but they are not a part of who I am in any fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. That's good. That's helpful. So we need to be very careful about the terms that we use and what the world means by the terms that they use. And what that does is that that brings us now to far and away the most important part of our time this morning, which is to open up the scriptures and to look at what God has to say about the issue of homosexuality. And the place to begin here, here's the thing about how we have to begin. Before we just sort of plunge ourselves into a discussion about homosexuality, we first have to stop, pause, and take a look at the grand drama and plan of salvation unfolding in history first. In other words, what I mean is, before we just jump into a a conversation about homosexuality uh, without first discussing the plan of salvation unfolding in history, it's like starting a movie three quarters of the way through. In in other words, before we jump into an explosive, controversial issue like this, we we need a context, we need a framework, we need a storyline to make sense out of what it is we are even talking about. To put it another way, Before we ask the question, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? We have to ask the question, what does the Bible teach about everything? You see, we have to know what the Bible says about everything. We have to understand that the Bible is a drama, a divine drama, a theological play, as it were, that reveals the plan of salvation unfolding in history. And in this drama, there is a beginning, there is an eternal ending, and there's this captivating plot unfolding in the middle. And you see, we will only understand the issue of homosexuality if 
we understand the plan of salvation unfolding in the Bible and in history. So here it is. Here's the drama of salvation. This is, this is the storyline of the Bible. Lights, camera, action. Act one, scene one. The Bible explodes with creation on the first page, right? As God speaks the entire universe into existence out of nothing. The universe is his theater. The earth is his stage. And on this stage, God created this exotic, breathtaking garden called Eden. And in this garden, he put the first two people ever created, Adam and Eve, our first parents, one man and one woman. You know how this goes. They were created in his own image and likeness. They lived in paradise and had perfect delight and satisfaction in God. It was perfect. Everything was as it should be. Everything that we wish we had now, they got to experience, at least for a while. But as you know, paradise was lost in chapter 3. And our first parents unleashed the virus of sin into the world. And when God showed up to the crime scene to confront the guilty couple, he essentially said to them, do you realize what you have done? You have ruined everything. You've ruined everything. You see, that sin that our first parents committed, you have to understand, would have mysterious and devastating effects spreading to every person like a virus, resulting in both spiritual and in physical death. Sin would corrupt and contaminate and pollute and enslave and kill the entirety of the human race. Sin would reverse from birth, even from birth, what God had created men and women to be and do. Sin would affect even, perhaps especially, our sexuality. Men and women would now emerge from the womb, separated from God, enslaved to sin, objects of wrath, craving all sorts of things which God has forbidden. All people would be born predisposed and inclined to all kinds of evil desires that they did not ask for and for which they would need healing and cleansing. This is what it means to be fallen. That is exactly the world you live in. And it all began in that moment in the garden. But you know, to our great relief, God did not leave it there, did he? You see, he quickly consoled our newly fallen parents to tell them in in, in chapter 3, verse 15, Genesis 3, 15, that all was not lost. All was not lost because as it turns out, a plan had already been put in place to send a redeemer, to send a deliverer, to send a savior, to send a Messiah, someone who would come in the future and crush the head of the serpent and solve the dilemma of sin. And this Redeemer would provide the very remedy needed to renew us and to restore us to God as the treasure of our souls. And then one day, the long-expected Redeemer and Messiah showed up on human history. And wouldn't you know it, he was God himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God arrived to the planet 
as a literal, historical human being. And he solved the dilemma of sin by the sacrifice of himself. He died. This, this, this Savior, it turns out, is, is Jesus Christ. And he died a sin-bearing death in the place of hell-deserving sinners. Why? So that they might be reconciled to God as the treasure of their souls. And all who turn from sin and who trust in him receive eternal salvation. They are restored to God. They are reconciled to God. They are freed from the power of sin. They are rescued from hell. And they are given power to overcome sin and temptation. And one day, mark my words, Christ will return visibly and publicly and physically to this planet and establish an invincible sovereign kingdom and he will make all things be the way they ought to be. You see, that is what we're talking about when we're talking about homosexuality. That's what we're talking about. See, the Bible is not predominantly a book about homosexuality. It's not a, a book of, about God giving a, a, a lecture on same-sex marriage or presenting a case to the Supreme Court. No, the Bible is a book about worshiping a Christ who forgives and cleanses. It's about a Christ who challenges us and who changes us and who convicts us and who converts us and who is coming again to reign over us. And yet, when we talk about all those things, we are, in a sense, talking about homosexuality. Do you know why? Because when we talk about men and women and love and marriage and, and sex and, and the longings for companionship, get this now, we are talking about things which do have connection, have connecting tissue to the plan of salvation unfolding in history. So what that means is that when we talk about homosexuality, we are not talking about conservative politics. We are talking about cosmic significance. Now, now we're ready. Now with the backdrop of salvation, now with the tapestry of salvation in place, now we're ready to look at the individual thread of homosexuality. And the first place to begin, and this brings us to a uh, part, whatever in your notes, a, a biblical theology of homosexuality. A biblical theology of homosexuality. And the first place to begin is Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28 which is, as you know, when God created the first man and woman in his own image and likeness. But the second place to begin is in Genesis chapter 2. And actually, I want you to turn there to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 through 25, which, as you know, is the first wedding in history, between the first man in history and the first woman in history, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And, and here's the thing you have to know about this text. You have to know that this text is so foundational to the entire discussion that we're about to have. What this text does is set the precedent. It sets the trajectory for all of our understandings of men and women and marriage and sexuality. It all begins here. What this text does for us is tell us the grand design of what marriage is and what it is supposed to be. I'll read the text, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And Yahweh God said, It is not good for man to be alone. 
I shall make for him a helper according to his counterpart or suitable for him. And Yahweh God formed from the ground all of the living creatures of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And everything that the man called the living creature, that was its name. And literally, the Hebrew says, and the man named names to all the cattle and the birds of the heavens and to all the living creatures of the field. But for the man, he did not find a helper suitable for him. And so Yahweh caused a deep sleep to fall on the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh after it. Then Yahweh, literally the Hebrew text says, built with the rib which he took from the man into a woman and he brought her to the man and he woke up and he saw her and the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken from man. Therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall, literally the Hebrew says, davak, cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the two of them, the man and his wife, were naked and they were not ashamed. That text is not about homosexuality. Explicitly, however, That is the foundational text to understand not only the design of marriage, but also the roles of men and women in marriage. You see, that text demonstrates implicitly, undeniably, that both homosexual activity and gay marriage, so-called gay marriage, are contrary to his design for men and women and marriage and sexuality. And I've got four or five observations about the the text in Genesis that I want you to notice. These will be totally obvious to you. Number one, Notice, notice the obvious fact that God established a world at the outset that demands one man and one woman, each uniquely fitted for the other, and that this combination of man and woman alone could enter into a covenant relationship sealed by a sort of physical union capable of producing and perpetuating a family and thus able to fulfill God's mandate to uh, multiply and increase and fill the, earth with, fill the world with people who are created in his own image and likeness. Listen to what Kevin DeYoung says. Kevin DeYoung wrote an incredible book on homosexuality, very short, um, and it's worth you getting. But he said this. He said, a different marital arrangement requires an entirely different creation account. One with two men or two women, or at least the absence of gender or complementarity or procreation. He said, it's not hard to conclude from a straightforward reading of the text that the divine design for sexual intimacy is not any combination of persons or even two type of persons coming together, but one man becoming one flesh with one woman. So that's obvious, but that needs to be said. Number two, observation number two. Speaking of one flesh, get this now, the nature of the one flesh union presupposes, assumes, demands persons of the opposite sex. You see, when Moses described the one man and the one woman becoming basar echad, one flesh, when he described that happening, what was in view was sexual intimacy. That's not the only thing that it means, but it certainly does not mean less than that. 
And you see, to be one flesh presupposes not only the union, but the reunion of two different people, complementary, coming together. So you have to understand that, that to be one flesh is both relational and biological, which means the sameness of parts in same-sex activity does not allow two people to become one in the same way. It is outside of the design. Number three, and this is totally obvious, this is such a no-duh, but it, it's worth saying. According to God's design, only two persons of the opposite sex can fulfill God's procreative designs for marriage. Right? Everybody knows that. Kids know that. But nevertheless, it needs to be pointed out from the text. Now, let's be clear. No one is saying that procreation is the only purpose of marriage, nor is anyone saying that sexual intimacy is given only as a means of reproduction, nor is anyone saying that a marriage is only legitimate if they can reproduce children. No one is saying that. But the point is, is that God has designed the world in such a way that only through the union of man and woman can the purpose of mankind be fulfilled, which is to fill the earth with people created in his own image and likeness and who display his glory, which tells us what this is, is a glory of God issue, not a civil rights issue. Observation number four. We need to remember that Christ himself upholds this creation, marriage account in Genesis chapter 2 as normative, real, and definitive. Christ quoted this text and he upheld this text as being the way that we should understand all marriage and sexuality. You see, in Matthew 19, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 19, the religious leaders tried to rope Christ into a debate about marriage and divorce. And what did he quote in response to them? He quoted Genesis chapter 2. And in so doing, he upheld what we see there as normative and as, the, as God's design for marriage and sexuality, namely one man and one woman. Which, which makes me think, if, if you've heard any of these discussions sort of in the blogosphere out there, you know that people will raise this objection. They'll say, well, you know what? Um, Christ never said anything about homosexuality, so I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of this. If you, if you really wanted to be like Jesus, you wouldn't make such a big thing out of this, and you would understand that love is love no matter to whom it is given or with whom it is shared. There are two responses to that. Number one, true, true, Christ didn't explicitly talk about homosexuality, but at the exact same time, he didn't have to. He didn't have to. Everybody understood from clear, clear, undeniable, unmistakable Old Testament teaching that, that homosexuality was clearly outside of God's design for marriage and sexuality. In fact, there's a Greek word that Christ, uh, there's a Greek word that Christ and the whole New Testament uses called parneia, parneia, and that term describes anything outside of God's design of one man, one woman together for life. In marriage. But at the exact same time, Christ did address homosexuality implicitly. How did he do that? By quoting Genesis chapter 2 and upholding that as the design, the perpetual and, and undeniable design for marriage. Observation number five. We have to remember that the deepest cosmic significance of marriage is upheld only, only 
if it is a permanent, lifelong union of man and woman who treasure Christ together. My point is, if you have anything other than one man and one woman who treasure Christ together in a permanent bond, it's not actually a marriage. It's, it's not actually a marriage, biblically speaking. You, you can call it that, and you can have a legal document that says that it is, but it's not actually a marriage. Because and even within the creation account, one can see the, the complementary nature of creation, can't you? Not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but he created other pairs also, didn't he? The sun and the moon. Morning and evening, day and night, sea and dry land, plants and animals, and then the culmination of his creation, man and woman. Do you see what God did there? Everything has its pair. Everything has its complement. Everything has its counterpart. So everything, the universe tells us when you look at it, that it has to be one man, one woman together for life. Which brings us to our next text. Uh, more I want to say, I want to talk more about Ephesians 5, but that'll have to wait for another sermon. That brings us to our second text, which, uh, both of which are found in Leviticus. And I believe the texts are on your notes uh, handed out, but the book of Leviticus. And we'll be in, uh, again, you don't have to turn there, but uh, the passages are on your notes. Now, here's the thing. Before we look at those two texts in Leviticus, uh, you have to know something very interesting. Uh, it's necessary to note that these two texts, which clearly forbid homosexual activity, that these verses would have been a jolting worldview shift to the people of Israel. To read these texts, they would have been surprised. Oh, oh, okay. That's, that would have been their response. See, when Leviticus was written, the people were fresh out of Egypt, right? Fresh out of Egypt, uh, and they just emerged from, from, from an Egyptian culture in which sexual, homosexual behavior was both known and in many ways tolerated. It's very interesting. In fact, the only known laws in the ancient Near East about homosexual activity uh, were commands against rape. That, that was the only explicit thing that you can find in, in ancient Near East writing. In the ancient Near East, homosexual acts and even homosexual prostitution were cultic acts of worship, and they were common, and they were considered acceptable. Listen to what Gordon Wenham says. He's an Old Testament scholar. He says this. He says, the ancient Near East was a world in which the practice of homosexuality was well known. It was an integral part of temple life, at least in parts of Mesopotamia, and no blame appears to have, to have attached to its practice outside of worship. Certain relationships, such as father, or father and son or pederasty, were regarded as wrong, but otherwise it was regarded in the ancient Near East as quite acceptable. And so... After having been exposed to the culturally accepted practice of homosexuality in Egypt for centuries, these two texts in Leviticus would have been like a jolting right hook of reality. Here are the texts. Leviticus 18.22 And you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a woman. It is in the Hebrew to'eva, an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. And a male who shall lie with a male as one lies with a woman, the two of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is on them. So it's clear. 
Yahweh issues absolute prohibitions against all, not just some, but all same-sex activity. What men typically do with women is not ever to be done with men. And, and here's the thing. Many attempt to, to try to make these verses and sort of skew them a little bit to make them commands against rape only, but that's just not going to work because these prohibitions here in Leviticus are just too, they're just too uh, all-inclusive. They're just too general. Yahweh, you'll notice, provides no qualifications, no exceptions, no explanations other than that every kind of homosexual activity is clearly forbidden. Now again, no one is saying, no one is saying that, that same-sex behavior is the only forbidden behavior. No one is saying that. The bottom line issue is, is that Yahweh is holy. And that as his people, Israel, were to be distinct and different and differentiated from the pagan nations that surrounded them, which included a radically, get this, which included a radically different sexual ethic rooted in the creation account in Genesis chapter 2 in the first marriage. That's where that came from. Listen to what Kevin DeYoung says. He said, God's plan for sexual intimacy in the garden was with one man and one woman. Not close relatives, not the wife of another man, not a man and an animal, not two men or not, and not two women. The pattern, get this, the pattern we saw in Genesis is the pattern we see reflected in the holiness code in Leviticus. Do you see? That's where it came from. And at this point, um, many people sort of raise the objection. They'll say, okay, you know what, fine, fine. I'll grant you that, that Leviticus rules out every kind of homosexual activity, fine. But is Leviticus even, is that even relevant to the debate? Is this, does, it, does, it, does Leviticus matter at all in the discussion? Because we know Leviticus commands all sorts of crazy things that we don't obey today, like not eating bacon. Chapter 11, verse 4, Leviticus forbids that. I really like bacon. What about intimacy with a woman during her menstrual cycle? That's awkward, I know, but Leviticus 18.19 forbids it. What about breeding two kinds, two kinds of animals or wearing two kinds of fabric? I'm wearing like 15 different kinds of fabrics today. I should be killed under Levitical law here. What about the command to not round off your hair or harm the edges of your beard? Chapter 19, 27 forbids that. What about stoning disobedient children? What about charging interest on a loan? Leviticus 25, 36 forbids that. So, so is Leviticus relevant in the debate? Well, why do you Christians pick and choose what you'd like to obey from the Bible? Why, why be such a stickler about homosexuality when you ignore all sorts of other things that the, new t- that the Old Testament commands and forbids? And the answer is this. We're not ignoring the rest. We're not ignoring the rest. Now, maybe as Christians in 21st century America, we don't keep those in the exact same way that people, that Jews living in the ancient Near East would have kept them who were under the Mosaic law. We're not under the Mosaic law, so, so we don't keep those in the exact same way. But the point is, every single thing that is commanded in the Old Testament still has applicational value. There are principles that still need to be applied. Now, the issue is complex, talking about, okay, what do you apply from the Old Testament? What do you not? But let's make it really simple for our purposes this morning. We obey from the Old Testament whatever the New Testament says we should obey. That's the principle. 
We obey whatever from the Old Testament that the New Testament says we should obey. So to prove to you, to prove to you the perfect legitimacy of Leviticus in the discussion, I have seven reasons why we need to take the Leviticus account about homosexuality deadly serious. You don't have to write these down. These are going to go really fast. Seven reasons why we need to take Leviticus serious in the discussion about homosexuality. Number one, again, we are Christians, not Jews. We are under the new covenant, not the Mosaic law. Okay, we we got that. However, that being said, that does not mean that anything in the Old Testament is irrelevant because it's not. It all still has applicational value in one way or another. You see, no New Testament writer, no no one in the New Testament, Christ especially, ever treated anything in the Old Testament as irrelevant. Leviticus included. And so the New Testament is clear that the Old Testament is good if one uses it properly. So there's that. Number two, homosexual activity being described as an abomination by Leviticus should give us great, great pause before we just offhandedly dismiss it from the discussion. The reason for that is because the Hebrew word abomination is one of the most, if not the strongest term in the Hebrew language to describe moral revulsion and disgust. Now, Homosexuality is not the only abomination that it, that it describes, but that word is so serious that we should pause, we should pause and carefully consider what Leviticus has to say. Number three, and these will get stronger as they go. Number three, homosexual activity is a behavior forbidden by both testaments. By both testaments. You see, when both testaments are in complete agreement about a given issue that that say that a given moral action is wrong, then the biblical witness is hard to avoid. There, There is no wiggle room on here, and both Old and New Testament affirm the same. Number four, homosexual activity is a behavior forbidden pervasively in both testaments. In other words, what I mean is there are no texts anywhere in the Bible that disagree about this issue. There's not one that's like, well, this is really serious. And another one says, well, this isn't so serious. There are some exceptions. No, the New Testament has nothing like that. Every single passage dealing with homosexuality is singing the same note, Old and New Testament. So to, 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 and, and here's the thing, to try to take general statements in the Bible about you know, love and tolerance and to, to use those verses and pit them against really specific verses about homosexuality and say, well, the Bible talks about love and tolerance and so you know, uh, that has more power than the homosexuality text. That, that just simply will not work. That will not work because both testaments are singing the same note. Number five. Homosexual activity is a severely forbidden behavior. It's a severely forbidden behavior. In other words, uh, well, and I should say, it's not the only severely forbidden behavior. No, No one is saying that. But both testaments are as strong about homosexuality as they possibly could be. Again, is anyone saying that homosexuals are worse sinners than others? No one is saying that. No one is saying that. Rather, the point is simply that both testaments agree on the severity with which homosexual activity is forbidden. Number six, homosexual activity is forbidden absolutely. 
It's forbidden absolutely. What I mean is the prohibitions against homosexual behavior, get this now, they encompass every form and kind and type of homosexual behavior. In other words, there's not some homosexual behaviors that are wrong and then some are okay if they meet some certain guidelines. There is no form or shape or, or manifestation of homosexuality anywhere in the Bible that says that any of it is okay. So it is forbidden absolutely. And then finally, number seven. The prohibitions against homosexual, homosexual activity make sense biblically anatomically and biologically speaking. In other words, the the clear complementarity of both male and female, including the ability to produce children, is an undeniable indication of God's will for sexuality and that anything outside of that is clearly against his design. So in answer to the question, yes, Yes, Leviticus is completely legitimate in the debate. These texts are just as relevant today as the day that Moses put pen to paper. No, no, we are not just arbitrarily picking and choosing what we would like to obey from the Old Testament. Rather, we are being consistent with the rules of interpretation and with the unanimous testimony of the Bible on this issue. Which brings us to text number three. We'll look at four texts this morning. Text number three, which brings us to Romans chapter one. So turn, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter one. And in particular, we'll look at verses 26 and 27. But I want you to begin at verse 16. Actually, I'm going to read verses 26 and 27. Romans one, verses 26 and 27. For this reason... God delivered them, that is the sinful human race, God delivered them over to passions of dishonor. For even their females exchanged the natural function for that which is against nature, and likewise also the males, after leaving the natural function of the female, burned in their appetite for one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving among themselves the due penalty of their error. That's a weighty, weighty text. And there's so much more that that could and should be said. We don't have time to say everything we need to say about Romans 1 this morning, but it is clear that, that Paul, with undeniable, unambiguous clarity, describes homosexuality as a tragic sin and a violation of God's created order. And And I want you to notice very carefully the structure of Paul's argument. In verses 16 and 17, he displays the saving power of the gospel. Do you see that? The saving power of the gospel, verses 16 and 17. In verses 18 through 20, he gives the reason why all mankind needs to be saved by the gospel, namely because the entirety of the human race as a whole has rejected God as the highest treasure in the universe. But then verses 21 and following get real grim, real quick, as Paul indicates three dark exchanges, three dark exchanges that the entire human race has made. Dark exchange number one. The sinful, sinful humanity has exchanged the glory of God for idols. Sinful humanity has exchanged the glory of God for idols. Look at verses 21 through 23. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they were made foolish in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they were made fools. And here it is. They exchanged 
the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of the image of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You should know, this is not just talking about pagans in some jungle somewhere. This isn't just this, the really, really bad people. This describes the entirety of the human race, what we all do when we were born. This is who we were. And so notice, notice human beings in our naturally depraved condition apart from and before Christ, we exchange the incorruptible God for counterfeit treasures of idols. Dark exchange number two. Sinful humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Sinful humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them, that is the entirety of the human race, gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to uncleanness in order that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Here it is. Who exchanged, there's that word again, the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here we see the, the, the dark exchange is the truth for a lie. Totally depraved human beings on their own. We hate the truth. Instead, we will make up our own truth and we will believe it as if it were true. That's the second dark exchange. Which brings us to dark exchange number three. Sinful humanity has exchanged the design of God for what is shameful. Sinful humanity has exchanged the design of God for what is shameful. Shameful. Again, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God delivered them over to passions of dishonor. For even their females, note the word, exchanged the natural function for that which is against nature. And likewise, also the males, after leaving the natural function of the female, burned literally in their appetite for one another, males with males committing shameful acts, receiving among themselves the due penalty for their error. So do you see the progression of Paul's argument? Do you see how Paul is demonstrating the horrifying results of exchanging God and exchanging the truth? The third dark exchange is that the human race gives up the natural relationships with members of the opposite sex and instead pursues them with members of the same sex. That's the, that's the result of everything else that came before. My point is, homosexual activity is the result of and the manifestation of rejecting God as the supreme treasure of the universe. That's the issue. And so the question is, what is Paul showing us about homosexuality? What is he saying? What is he not saying about homosexuality? And I have four observations from Romans 1. Number one, we have to come to grips with the fact that homosexuality is not actually the most heinous sin described in this chapter. Homosexuality is not the worst sin described in this chapter. Rather, the trading and exchanging of God is the most heinous crime in the chapter. We have to get this. You see, homosexuality and all other sins for that matter, tragic though they may be, are only symptoms of a deeper, more catastrophic issue, namely that the human race has traded God for what is worthless. 
You see, what we have to understand is that sin is a symptom of the darkest sin that can be committed by a human being, namely taking something that's not God and loving it and worshiping it and trying to be satisfied in it as if it were God. That's the issue in Romans chapter one. Number two, we need to see that Paul's point is that homosexuality is not proof of man's advancement or the expression of his freedom, but we have to reckon with the reality that homosexuality is a sign of God's judgment. That's so weighty. That is so weighty. So what we see that is promoted and celebrated That is not an expression of of their freedom. They think that it is. But we must, with even tears in our eyes, look at that and say, what we are seeing before our very eyes is a sign of God's judgment. Listen to the way Sam Albury put it. When we try to visualize what God's wrath looks like, many of us imagine CGI from from a disaster movie or think of lightning bolts falling from the sky. But Paul gives us a very different picture of God's wrath. We see God's wrath in this. He gives us what we want. Number three. When Paul says that lesbian or or homosexual behavior is against nature, verse 26, he means that homosexual behavior contradicts God's design for us revealed in creation. In other words, it's not natural. And, and, And Paul is assuming in Romans 1 that it's a matter of common sense that simple human anatomy and the procreative function would be obvious to pagans who had never heard even one word of Scripture their entire lives. You see, bottom line, bottom line, the point that Paul's making is that homosexual practice is sinful because it violates the divine design that is undeniable and obvious in the way that God created human beings to function. And fourth, and most importantly, Paul's objective here in Romans 1, listen very carefully, Paul's objective in Romans 1 is not to rank homosexuality as the worst sin in the universe. That, that, that's not what he's doing in Romans 1. He's not ranking it as the worst sin in the universe. Rather, what he is doing is using homosexuality as the most vivid demonstration of man's attempt to turn away from God and his design. That's what he's doing. In other words, Paul's point in citing homosexuality is more illustrative than evaluative, meaning it is a shocking demonstration of the depths to which a human being will go to try to satisfy their deepest longings apart from and without God. Do you see? That's the issue. That's the issue. You see, homosexual behavior is not the only sin, nor is it the worst sin necessarily. Rather, Paul cites it in Romans 1 because it is one of the most, if not the most, heartbreaking manifestation of man's attempt to satiate his deepest cravings in something other than God. That's the issue. Now, final text and I'm quickly running out of time here, but 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and I believe it's in your notes. And, and so much could and should be said about this text, and I'm going to have to short-circuit a lot of it. The text says this, 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. 
Paul says there, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor coveters, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And you were these things, but you washed yourselves, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, really clear, helpful observations from this text. Paul, and, and this, this text is so high stakes for us because what Paul does in this list is define the kind of people who will and will not be in the kingdom of God. So it really is worth our time to figure out exactly who Paul is talking about, right? The stakes could not be higher. And what we have to understand, a few observations from this text, is that there are 10 sins in the list. 10 sins in the list that Paul just gave. Four of those sins are sexual sins. Two of the four have to do with homosexuality. That means 20% of the sins on the list have to do with homosexual activity and behavior. This is really big. Uh, another observation, uh, many Bible versions, I think the ESV and the NIV, only give one word for homosexuality. There's actually two in the Greek text. It's the word um, uh, effeminate and homosexual. Th- those are the two terms. There's two Greek terms. And what Paul does, this is a little awkward, but what Paul does with those two terms is describe both the active and passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Do you see what he does there? In giving those two terms that describe the active and passive partner in a homosexual relationship, what he does is that he rules out every kind of homosexual behavior. He rules out every single kind. In other words, every form and type and kind and manifestation of homosexual behavior is out of the question, even if it is committed by faithful, consensual, monogamous relationship between two men or two women. It it doesn't matter. Because the two terms in the list give uh, uh, rule out all kinds of activity, homosexual, all homosexual activity. Another observation, I want you to notice this very carefully. Notice that Paul warns his readers in the text to not be deceived. Did you see that? He warns his readers to not be deceived about the sins in the list and the infinite danger they possess, which indicates that Paul is assuming that people are going to come along and they're going to say that, some, that these sins on the list, they're actually okay. He, he's assuming that people are going to come along and say, actually, you know what? Th- there's nothing wrong with that and here's the reason why. And that people are going to try to persuade you that they're not as dangerous as they are. Guess what? We live there and we've always lived there. So Paul says, do not be deceived. Hold the line, he says, with compassion, with love, and with tears in your eyes, but hold the line nevertheless. Final observation. We see so clearly from the text that homosexual sin is not inescapable, is it? it, it it's, not, it's not stronger than the sovereign grace of God. It's not the black hole of sins out of which no one can climb. No, in other words, there is hope. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, you were these things. You were them. You did them. You used to be them. You used to be enslaved to them, but those days are no longer. Why? He says, you washed yourselves. That is, you repented. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. They used to be slaves to sin and to sexual sin and to homosexual sin in particular. But what happened to the Corinthians? What happened to them? 
God intervened. God intervened. They were cleansed. They were rescued. They were delivered. They were forgiven. They were changed. They were transformed. They were declared not guilty because of the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in their place and because of the sovereign grace of God doing radical surgery on their very souls. Do you see the hope-giving, soul-satisfying power that this text possesses? There is hope for people through the death of Christ. Do you see This is such good news. This is incredibly good news. Well, there's more that I I, want to say. Let me conclude finally, last part, with a a brief call to courage and conviction and compassion. A call to courage, conviction, and compassion. Church, never forget that although it looks like the world is coming apart at the seams, and it is, never, ever forget that the triune God is in perfect sovereign control over everything, over everything. This is not the first time that the universe has felt like it was, it was upside down. This is not the first time, and it will not be the last, and it won't even be the worst time. And you just need to know that even chaos, even the chaos is all part of the plan. God is in perfect sovereign control. Number two, more implications here. Never ever forget that no, that no matter the, the political and social opposition that the church is going to face, and you will face it. You will face it. Some of you will lose your jobs. Some of you will experience the kind of abuse that you get online and, and, and those kinds of things. You, you will, some of you will be shunned by family members. Just know that Jesus Christ Even if that happens, Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Number three, remember, church, remember that God has so sovereignly worked in your salvation so as to exclude all boasting and all feelings of superiority over other human beings, right? God chose you before the foundation of the world, even despite your supposed merit and and worthiness, because you had none, you had none, and yet God chose you anyway. And Christ paid in full for your sins and for your soul. Remember, the only contribution that you had to your own salvation were the sins that need to be forgiven. Do not forget that we should all be in hell even as we speak. Because when we think of sin from that perspective, it becomes impossible to feel even a millimeter of superiority over another human being. Number four, whatever, whatever I'm on here, uh, I want you to have lion-hearted courage. And I want you to have broken-hearted compassion for real people with real souls who will really spend eternity somewhere, who really need the gospel, not just the homosexual community, but everybody that you know, because you are surrounded by people who don't know Christ. I told the guys on a Wednesday morning, I meet with some of the guys from this church on a Wednesday morning, I said, you know, you know the only difference between Texas and Washington? The difference is this. There are just as many unbelievers in this area. The difference is, is that there are more gay pride flags in Washington. That's the only difference. You are surrounded by lost people. May you have courage. May you have compassion. To youth and college, to youth and college, um, and I guess to everybody, whenever you're put on the spot 
to articulate your views on marriage and sexuality and homosexuality in particular, remember that you can and must be courageous and compassionate. And you can say something like this. When asked to declare your views, you can say, you know, I stand before you a wretched sinner saved by God's grace. Open with that. I stand before you as a wretched sinner saved by God's grace. And I live my life in submission to the word of God because everybody has an authority to which they appeal. I have an authority. You have an authority. My authority just happens to be the word of God. And I can only respond to your question by telling you what God himself says in his word. Yes, homosexuality is a sin because it is outside of God's grand design for marriage and sexuality. God never says that homosexuals are worse sinners than others, but he has worked triumphantly in Jesus Christ to save all those who are needy and bankrupt and thirsty for the springs of eternal salvation. So the message of the Bible, I'm still quoting a script for you, the message of the Bible, not only to you, but to everyone is I have something better to give. And that something better is Jesus Christ himself as our highest treasure forever. Oh, church, and I close with this. You exist for the imperial majesty of Jesus Christ and for the glory of his invincible sovereign empire. And so when you go out there today in a very uncertain an unpredictable world who does not want to hear what you have to say. May you speak with lion-hearted courage and may you speak with broken-hearted compassion. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we see that the church unassailable, the church invincible is a persecuted church. O oh Lord, we see that the battle is won not with swords and with guns and with riots and protests, but the battle is won, O oh Lord, as your church suffers under the hand of persecution as they proclaim the word. O oh Lord, I don't know what's in store for this church. I don't know what's in store for these people, Lord, and I am certainly not wishing that anything would come. I pray that we would be able to declare the gospel with boldness and courage and, and winsome love and compassion and grace, O oh Lord, without the, without the additional heavy threat of, of losing jobs because of what we believe and what we say, Lord, but, but it doesn't look like that that's going to be the luxury that we get to enjoy. I pray for my people to be strengthened by your word. I pray for my people to be strengthened with doctrine, to be strengthened with theology, that they would, be, that they would have a, a, a backbone of steel, that they would be uncompromising, warmly and compassionately uncompromising in their witness. Oh, give them boldness. Oh, give them strength. Oh, use this people. Oh, Lord, I pray for awakening in the DFW area. I pray for renewal in this church and in this area. And I pray for transformation. And that is a miracle that only you can perform, Christ. So we look to you. Whether you grant it or not is up to you, but we ask for it nevertheless. In your matchless name we pray. Amen.